All right. Hey, good evening, everyone. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. Uh, we will be in Matthew chapter 6 tonight. For those of you who don't know, uh, that is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, we will be in the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, part of, of really what we're doing is a chapter of this Bible that, that we're looking all the month of January. We're looking at this Matthew chapter 6 and, and really trying to settle our hearts on this idea that Jesus is going to land this plane. Next week we will look at the passage where Jesus commands us, he tells us, he instructs us and invites us not to worry. So tonight... Uh, we will look at Matthew chapter 6, um, and as we jump in, he, here's really um, what I want to point out, and, and this is not something you'll find in the scriptures, um, I believe it's taught in the scriptures, but you won't find the sentence there. It's just a sentence that's occurred to me over the years. One of the things I do uh, as a pastor is I just get to counsel people through all sorts of wildlife situations. So sometimes it's bankruptcy, and sometimes it's marriage issues, and sometimes it's addiction, and sometimes it's career advice. I, I just find myself with a lot of people talking about a lot of different varied life stories, and here's something I have found to be true over the years in counseling people on every different issue. I found that if the topic is sensitive, it's probably significant. This is what I found over the course of my life. When a topic is sensitive, like when it's hard for us to talk about and we kind of don't want to talk about, and it's kind of the thing we'd rather pretend just doesn't exist, it's probably significant. So like one of the things I hope you've learned at this point in your life is that your childhood is not neutral. Whether you had a really good childhood or the worst childhood imaginable or, or something in between, I hope you've recognized that actually talking about and processing your childhood is significant. Because it's sensitive, it's significant. Uh, I'll say this, I hope you've learned at this point in your life that sex is not value neutral. Like, don't stress, we're not talking about sex tonight, and some of you are, like, relieved. But, but I want you to know that if you've come to the place as an adult where you are unwilling to talk about sex and sexuality, yet you'll never grow. Because what's sensitive is, is always significant in our lives. And here's what I found as a pastor when I preach. I find that there are certain subjects, when I stand up and talk about it, people get defensive because it's sensitive. It's kind of like if you've ever had like a toothache, where anytime you have something cold or hot on that side, it gets like really sensitive. And so instead of going into the dentist, you just start chewing on the other side. You ever done that? right? And so it's sensitive, and so you kind of set up like a defense mechanism so you don't actually have to deal with the sensitive thing. But if something's sensitive, it is probably, in fact, it is almost certainly significant. And what I want to tell you tonight is this simple thing, that we're going to be talking about something that is sensitive tonight, but we're also going to be talking about something that is incredibly significant for your life and for you following Jesus. T tonight, what we're going to talk about is your money. And when I say your money, immediately these walls start shooting up. Like, you, you're like, where's my wallet? Like, they're not getting anything, right? right? It's just like this immediate defense mechanism comes up. And here's what I want you to know. It's sensitive, therefore it's significant. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced of this, that few things are as significant to your spiritual life as what you do with your money. Few things are as significant to you following Jesus as what you do with your money. That your money is not neutral. It is not neutral what happens with your bank account, with your paycheck, with your credit card, your debt, your savings, your spending. All of these things are not neutral. All of these things are deeply intertwined with what it means to be a disciple and an apprentice of Jesus. Now, now if you don't believe me on this, I put this question out before, and I want to kind of put it this way. Um, I want to compare and contrast two things. The first question is this. Uh, I'll make sure I'm saying this right. Um, how many verses in the Bible are there about faith and prayer? Now, I've asked this before, and faith and prayer would kind of seem like central things in the Bible. The answer is about 500. 
It depends on how you count it. You can get higher or lower. It's, just, it's about 500. Here's question number two. How many Bible verses are there about money and possessions? And the answer, in the same way of counting, is 2,350. And, and so here's what occurs to me. Like, if you're going to live some kind of faith where you follow after Jesus, just money doesn't get to be a part of the conversation, it would be as ludicrous as you being like, I want to follow Jesus, I just don't want you to talk to me about faith or prayer, all right? It would be ludicrous. So something sensitive like money is also going to be something significant. And so listen, I'm not here tonight because the church is broke. All right, it's not like from time to time they're like, we're out of money, go shake down the YA people. I'm like, they're broke, and it's like, oh, it's just go ask, you know, like, that's not why we're here. Listen, um, I'm just really not as interested in your giving statement as I am in your soul. And here's what I'm convinced of. If you want to follow Jesus seriously, if you want to grow in your faith, money has got to be a part of your conversation. You have got to look at your, your bank account, your tax returns. I know there's a weird time of life where you start having to do tax returns. No one ever trained you how to do that. You're like, I don't know how to do this. You've got to do it. And here's the weird thing, and this is something I want you to recognize, even as you do your taxes this year, that your tax return and bank statement are theological documents. They are theological documents. What do I mean by that? It is really easy to say things like, I believe we're supposed to give money to the poor. But if I look at your tax return, and we go to the place where you deduct donations to the 501c3 organizations that actually show you've given money to the poor, and that number is zero, you can say anything you want but you don't actually believe in giving money to the poor. You can claim that you're really invested in something, but if you don't actually show any money going toward that, it'd be like, I'm really into fitness. I really want to get in shape. I'm really into lifting weights. I'm like, oh, okay, how much you spend on your gym membership? That is ludicrous. I would never, you know? Like at some rate, your bank account and your tax statements show where your money flows, and where your money flows is what you actually believe in. And so again, it's very easy for people to make claims about what they believe about money. But I want to challenge you to think about your bank account, to think about your tax statement, to think about my, where your money actually went in 2022 and ask yourself, what does it show I really believe about money? So tonight, I want us to be crystal clear on this, that your money is not value neutral. It's not irrelevant to your faith. It is everything. It shows where you ultimately put your trust and confidence. And I want you to see this in Matthew chapter 6. So, um, Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, very beginning of the chapter. It'll be on the screen as well. Jesus is speaking, and he says, be careful. Like, in other words, he needs you to be aware of something. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, so the first thing I want to point out is an assumption that Jesus makes in this text. And the assumption that Jesus makes is that you are going to do righteous things in your life. Notice what he says. He says, be careful not to practice your righteous deeds or your righteousness in front of others that you might be seen by them. Like the assumption is that you will do righteous things, but what Jesus is urging you to be careful of is that you're not doing it in such a way that displays them to others because what will actually happen is you will lose the reward your Father in heaven wants to give you. And I think this is significant for us. Uh, again, Jesus is not trying to say, um, don't do righteous things. He's trying to say, you're going to do righteous things. He assumes you're going to. This isn't even a command to do the right thing. This is Jesus assuming that if you follow him, you'll do the right thing. And yet Jesus' profound concern here is that you would do the right thing in such a way that doesn't rob you of reward. Like, let me put it to you this way. So years ago, uh, there was a group of grad students who were studying root systems of trees, which sounds profoundly boring, right? <laughs> like, maybe that's what you're into. I, I would be so bored. 
And yet they created something that was so beautiful. You can find these online. They sketched out root systems of trees. I want to show you this. This was so cool to me. So they would find actual trees, and they would figure out how the root systems worked within them, and they would sketch this out. And I saw this one, and I looked at it, and I went, that's how I want my spiritual life to look. That's how I want it to look. Like there are going to be things that people see. They're going to see me show up to church. They're going to see me worship. They're going to see me serve. I'm not trying to hide things. Jesus' point isn't like, make sure no one ever sees you doing anything good ever, right? That's not what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus knows there are going to be times that we are seen for our righteous deeds. And yet here's what Jesus wants, and here's what I want to be true of my spiritual life and of your spiritual life. I think there should be far more things that you do in private that no one ever knows about than the public things that everyone else sees. I think if you want to have a healthy, thriving relationship with God where you walk by faith, there should be all kinds of things that no one else ever sees, and yet that is time you have with the Lord. Now, now that can mean literally private, like times of prayer you have or times of Bible reading, times where you're just driving over in the car worshiping, and it's not like you're posting yourself worshiping on social media or telling people about it. That can mean just like private little disciplines. Like I think like that root system, it counts with like my wife and I. We pray at night, and that's just something no one else ever sees. Maybe you have like roommates or people who are close to you, and that's just kind of like a private discipline you have. It's not public. No one else sees it. No one's impressed with it. But here's what you need to know. If you want to have a thriving, healthy spiritual life, what happens in private needs to overwhelm what happens in public. And my fear for far too many Christians is the only spirituality they have is the stuff everyone else sees. But you will never thrive in that kind of way. In fact, this is true, that your spiritual power comes from what's done in private. Like if you are looking for spiritual power and breakthrough in your life, it comes from what's in private. This is what we talked about with prayer. It's what we talked about with fasting. It's what we're going to talk about tonight. It's that thing I do that no one else sees over and over and over and over again. That's what builds spiritual power in my life. So Jesus says, be careful not to do these things and everything. You'll lose this reward your father is offering you. And then Jesus says these words. He says, so when you give, in verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy. So once again, Jesus makes an assumption about your life. And, and, and this assumption isn't actually about every single one of you in this room tonight. Because here's what I assume. I assume that there are some of you who are in this room and you are not followers of Jesus. Like you're checking this thing out. You're just kind of investigating. And that's awesome that you're here. I'm just thrilled you're here and thrilled you're leaning in. And here's what I want to do tonight. I want to let you off the hook. Because Jesus is talking here about people who are following him. And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're like, okay, Jesus is assuming I'm going to give money. Jesus is not assuming you're going to give money. You're off the hook. You just get to kind of lean back tonight. But if you do call yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to know Jesus assumes something to be true about you. And the assumption is that you'll give to the needy. It's kind of like this. I said this the other week. It'd be like if I said, hey, every morning when you brush your teeth, make sure to do blank. That's not a command to brush your teeth. It's an assumption that you are already doing that on a regular basis. And then I'm going to give you some instruction about how to do that. Jesus is doing that the same way. This isn't some profound command like make sure to give money. Jesus is going, the people who are going to follow after me are the people who have learned that giving is not an optional part of life. Like it's a thing we're going to do. And then what does Jesus say to do? He says when you give, and then he says these words, three words, to the needy. When you give to the needy. Like the assumption of Jesus about your life is that you are going to give financially. I know we can talk about other ways of giving time or or your abilities or talents or your energy. All of that's great. But he is talking about money here. 
And his assumption is there are going to be dollars that flow out of your bank account to the needy. And here's just what I want to challenge us to think about tonight in this room. Every single week, Brian or Pastor Sarah or or any of our leaders get up here and we talk about giving to one particular place. And that would be to your local church. Now, for some of you, your local church is this church. Like Calvary is your home church. This is where you're plugged in. For others of you, here's what we know. You attend here on Thursdays, but you've got another church that's your local church, and you're really rooted there. This is just like a benefit and a blessing to you. I just want you to do this. Wherever your local church is, we challenge you to give every single week. And why do we do that? We stand up here and we challenge you to give every single week because of this, that every dollar you give to your church flows to those in need. Every dollar you give to your local church flows to those in need. Now, here's what I know immediately. I know how self-serving that sounds, right? Like, I get a paycheck from this church. I'm like, give the church money so they can give it to me. And that's like what, what, what it sounds like. I get that. Like, I get the churches have handled money poorly. I get the churches sometimes really, really mess this thing up. And sometimes maybe you've been part of a church that messed it up so bad you never want to do it again. And yet, here's what I've discovered in real life. And I know this is just going to sound confrontational and really just hope my heart is coming across as pastoral. I've talked to so many people who don't want to give money to the church because they read that Jesus says, well, give to the needy. And they go, well, I don't want to give to the church. I'm just going to give directly to the needy. And I ask them what that means. And then the answer gets really muddy at that point. Like the answer is like, well, I, I give money to people on the sidewalk. Or they say, well, I, I, just, I give money to other organizations that help the poor. And then when we really drill into that, The answer for so many people, and maybe this isn't you at all, okay, but the answer for so many people who claim, I don't give to the church, I just give to the needy, is they give barely anything at all. And so my challenge to you is this. If you are really convinced that Jesus has not called you to give to the local church, but instead has called you to give to the needy, do that. But do that generously. Do it to the point where it hurts. If you are really convinced in your soul that God has not called you to give to the local church, but rather to give directly to organizations that work with those in need, which there's other problems with that too, right? Like there's overhead in every organization you're ever going to give to, right? That's going to be a problem. But even if you're convinced of that, I want you to do that. But but then here's my second thing that I just want you to be so clear on. Um, The people who are convinced that giving to the church isn't giving to those in need are the people who don't really understand what a church does. Like just don't understand what happens here. And so here's what I want to convince you of. I want to convince you that when you give money to this place, you're not just like giving to some big organization, some big conglomerate. I want you to know that the money just gets like resourced and flowed toward those in need. Um, Like here's what some of you know, um, and maybe some of you don't know this. Um, Every Tuesday we have a ministry that happens here on campus, uh, and that ministry is called Fresh Market. Can we put up a little picture of Fresh Market here? Uh, Fresh Market is an incredible ministry opportunity where people who are in need, and this is kind of like the suburban poor who, they're not necessarily homeless, like there's, there's organizations that help with that, but they're just like right on the edge. They drive through our parking lot, and here's what's so cool. There are people all over this area that donate food from supermarkets that hasn't gone bad, but is past the point where they can put it out, and they give it to us so that we can give it away to others. And there are people who serve in that. There are ministries that set it up. There are resources from this church that flow into this so that we can feed people who are in need in our community. The same thing is true with our food bank here, our food pantry. You'll show a picture of that. There are people who work that, who who aim for that, who who collect food, who organize it, who have facilities in which they use that to get it to the best people in the right amount of time. 
Uh, again, when you give to this church, when you give to any church, again, I'm going to say this over and over. If Calvary's not your church and there's some other church, I'm not asking for your money. It's not about Calvary. Give to your church. But there's a food bank here that serves hungry people. There are people who have food in their pantries tonight because of people who gave to Calvary. There's the fresh market. There's the food pantry. Can I show you this next picture here? Can I show you this next picture? This is a picture of our early childhood ministries. And now, when I show the food pantry or fresh market, you're like, yeah, yeah, those are definitely people in need. But when I show these little kiddos here, some of you immediately went to, those kids aren't in need. And the only reason you thought those kids aren't in need is because you don't have children who are that young. I want you to know as a dad of a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and an 11-month-old, those are the most needy kids on the planet. And the reason they're the most needy kids on the planet is because they can do nothing on their own, and without help from adults, they die. That's those children. And here's what our church does. Our church has a well-funded ministry called Early Childhood Ministry that provides a safe place that provides trained volunteers, background checked and fingerprint, that provides space and toys and energy and curriculum and goldfish snacks and everything it takes to serve and love these kiddos. There are kids at this church who are served and loved through this ministry. When you give to this church, it goes to those in need. These little ones, the most vulnerable people in the world are children. And when you give to a church, when you give to the ministry of the church, you are giving to those who are vulnerable and in need. Let me show the next photo here. This next photo you'll recognize because you're sitting in this room right now. This is a picture from one of the events of our high school ministry called Friday Night Lights. And now you might think to yourself, okay, little kids, I get how they're vulnerable, but high school kids, that's not the needy. Those aren't the weak. And the only reason you're saying that is because you've already forgotten what high school was like. High school was incredibly dangerous. And maybe on a physical level, certainly there are some people who encounter physical danger in their homes and at their schools and at parties in high school. But high school is a place where you are vulnerable to the lives of the enemy. You are vulnerable to the patterns of this world. There are people who are getting sucked into destructive lifestyles in high school. And our high school ministry that meets in this room, hundreds of people every Sunday. There are thousands of people who come to events like this, invest in the weakness of high school students. And when you give to a church like this, you're giving to invest in the weakness of high school kids. So again, when I say when you give to this church, your money flows to those who are weak, flows to those who are in need. I'm not making this up. Next picture. Here's a picture where you're like, that just looks like some people taking notes during a class. That's exactly what it is. And yet, if you don't know this, when you come on the mornings here, you will not find a parking spot here at Calvary. Because almost every morning of the week, this place is packed with people who come in for classes. And it's classes on parenting and classes on how to get through hard times, classes on how to get through divorce, classes on how to get through addiction. There's all sorts of people learning and growing. And when you give to a church, you're giving so that people can be helped to the single mom who shows up at the thing that's to help, to help her get through her life. It's to the person who's just trying to navigate widowhood because they lost their husband of 60 years and they're not sure how to move forward. There are weak and vulnerable people who are in need. And when you give to this church, it helps them. Next photo. Do you know if there are people who are paid by this church just to serve and help those who have gone through loss, those who have gone through pain, those who walk in aching, those who need a funeral memorial done, those who need someone to step in and be by their bedside as they're in the hospital, that there are hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of phone calls made every single year through this church to those who are in need and those who are hurting. And when you give to the church, you help fund that. Uh, I'll show you this next picture here. It's one of our worship services here at Calvary. And you might think, a worship service? How's that helping those in need? I don't know. You ever just had one of those weeks where you weren't sure you wanted to have another week and then you came into worship and the Holy Spirit of God built you up and you were able to walk out of there with strength and courage to take on another week because you encountered the presence of God? Just me? Okay, just me. Okay, 
But here's what I'm saying. Like, like when we do these worship services, they're not free. And yet the resources that pour in to make something like this possible allow us to be built up and encouraged. And even if you're like, oh, you don't need that much stuff to do worship, fine. we got to pay a light bill, right? Because if you're looking down in a Bible right now and the lights aren't on, you aren't looking at a Bible. You're, maybe you are. I don't know how the physics works. But you know what I mean? Like, you just need the basics to get through. And then um, here's one of the coolest ones. Like, when you give to the church, you give to something like this. This is um, folks in Ukraine getting food. And we have dozens and dozens and dozens of global partners on all continents serving and loving and ministering in the name of Jesus, feeding kids and helping them. Millions of dollars a year flows through this church to places all over the world. And so again, when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, when you give to the needy, I know of no better way to do that than to give to the local church who is serving those in need. And are there things that a church is going to do where you're like, oh, I don't like that they did that? Sure, of course. That's true of every organization in the world. And so when we stand here and we challenge you to give week after week after week after week, it's because when you give, it flows to those in need. And here's what I know. I know that some of you give regularly and faithfully. And that's an amazing thing. I imagine others of you are just feeling like a conviction of the Holy Spirit that maybe that's something you're supposed to do right now. And still others of you are just mad that I would talk about it. It sounds self-serving. You're, you're angry. You're, you're defensive. And, and I, I kind of get that. Like churches and even myself, we've messed up on this. And I get it. And yet here's the question I always want you to wrestle with when we're talking about hard things. We talked about this when it came to fasting. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself when it comes to giving to this church or any other local church. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Because listen, you don't actually owe me an answer. Like, it's not like on the way out tonight, we're going to be like, so do you give? Do you? Like, we don't know. Actually, one of the things I need you to know is that as a pastor at this church, I don't know if any of you give. I don't have access to those records. There are people who do for legal and tax reasons, but I'm not one of them. They're a very small group of people, and they're not the people you see on stages. And so here's what, I don't know if you give. You don't owe me an answer on that. You don't know the person to your left or to your right an answer on that. You don't owe anyone an answer except for God. Like, you who got an answer. And to wrestle with him. And if at the end of the day, you believe the Holy Spirit of God is telling you, don't give, okay. Like, you wrestle with God on that. But if you are unwilling to even pray this prayer, I don't think the issue is money. I think there's a deeper issue going on with your heart. Again, Jesus assumes, he assumes that if we are following him, we are going to give to the needy. And I know of no better way of doing that than giving to your local church. Jesus says this, though. He says, when you give to the needy, and he goes on to say this. Remember, he's going to give us a warning here. He says, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Well, one of the things I love about Jesus is he touches on, like, universal human experiences, and so sometimes our assumption can be that Jesus is talking about things that were only relevant in the ancient world, but aren't really relevant now. And so what Jesus does here is he says, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Now, actually, in, in all of ancient literature, there is zero indication that anyone actually ever took a trumpet and was like, and then like threw a few dollars in the offering plate. Never happened. Jesus is using something called hyperbole here. You know what hyperbole is. I know what it is. Jesus knew what it was. He used it all the time. I use it sometimes. Jesus used it better. Jesus says, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. So what is Jesus doing? He is not forbidding trumpet use, okay? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is trying to keep us from doing something, and we've actually come up with a modern phrase for what Jesus is trying to prevent us from doing. 
Jesus is trying to prevent us from being people who simply virtue signal rather than actually make a difference in the world. Right? Like virtue signaling is nothing new in this world. We just came up with the term a few years ago. And social media has poured fuel on the gas. Uh, no, gas on the fire. Something about the fire it has poured gas on. <laughs> Talking is hard. So let me give an example. And this might step on some of your toes. And I'm willing to risk that because about a year ago, something major happened in our world. And um, if you've kind of forgotten about it or aren't tracking about it, it was almost a year ago. Um, we started to hear about Russia mounting troops on the border of Ukraine. And, and, and really, we got into the spring and it got real serious and the invasion began. And, and in addition to all the economic consequences, we continue to see a war-torn country. And, and so people's hearts were breaking with images and reports that were coming in. And so all over social media, here's what we saw. We saw this type of thing. I stand with Ukraine. Maybe you posted that. Maybe you changed your thing to a Ukraine flag. Maybe you superimposed a Ukraine flag over a picture of you drinking a coffee. Like, whatever you did, you, you posted that. And then listen, I, I'm not here to stand tonight and tell you that that was wrong. In, in fact, I think there are times where we just voice that we care about something, and that's important. And yet, here's my big burden. Um, I, I think there were far more people that posted that they stand with Ukraine and care deeply about Ukraine than there were people that gave even a dollar out of their wallet to care about the people of Ukraine. And, and what Jesus is trying to say is that you posting you stand with Ukraine is pretty much your reward. People will see what you posted that everyone else posted and go, oh, she cares about Ukraine, and then move on. And that's your reward in full. And, and yet what some of you might be aware of is that here at Calvary, we're just a microcosm uh, of the entire world, but here at Calvary, we decided to take up a Ukraine offering. And so last spring, we asked the people here at Calvary, we said, listen, um, there's going to be suffering in Ukraine now and for the next year and the next decade, and we want to be in on that. We have mission partners in Ukraine. We want to help them. We want to serve them, and we ask for money. And the people of Calvary gave over a quarter million dollars in the course of a month to serve and help the people of Ukraine. And then images started flooding in like this one, of food pallets and water and supplies that were getting to war-torn places where there was no more food, and children and moms were dying, and food was suddenly arriving. And I look at pictures like that, and I go, that's the kind of picture I want my life to be like. I don't want to just post I stand with Ukraine. I want to give in such a way that I can actually help the people of Ukraine. I don't want to just post like I stand with Ukraine. I want to actually be someone who gives to it, and I want that to be true of everywhere in my life. I don't want to be someone who just signals my virtue. I want to be someone who opens my wallet. And Jesus' burden here is don't be the type of person who's trying to impress everyone with how righteous you are. It doesn't matter in the end. It doesn't help anyone. Jesus is saying be the type of person who gives so that hungry people can have food, so that dying people can have medicine. Be that type of person. And again, I'm not here to stand and say if you didn't give to Ukraine, you don't care about them. I'm here to say try to align what your life is with what you say your life is. That's Jesus' burden here. He says in verse 3, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, once again, um, there's actually no way to not know what your left hand and your right hand is doing. They're not like independent beings where it's like, what, what are you, what, what? You know, like that doesn't happen. So once again, Jesus is using hyperbole. But, but what's Jesus' point here? When he says, don't let your left hand do what your, know what your right hand is doing, he's trying to say, like, don't do things in such a way that just, like, shows off your righteousness to others. Jesus is promoting a value that has been utterly lost in our time, and I'm here to stand on this stage tonight and tell you that this is a good, beautiful word worth us reclaiming. And here's the word. You might be surprised by it. The word 
is modesty. Modesty. Now, if you grew up in church, that word might send shivers up your spine. Especially if you were a female, and especially if you ever went to a camp or anything like that, even one of our camps, right? Like, this was a big thing. And so a lot of us, if you grew up in, like, evangelical subculture, modesty just meant, like, mostly women don't wear those kinds of clothes. And, and we can get into a whole conversation about whether that was good and where that was bad and where that went off the rails, and that's a whole thing. But, but here's what I want you to know. Modesty is not principally about the clothes you wear. Modesty is not particularly about your body or about clothing. Here's how I want to define modesty. Modesty is the capacity to possess without the need to present. That's what modesty is. Modesty is this ability or capacity to possess something but not need to present it to everyone. So when it comes to your body and physical and clothes and all that, it's the ability to possess a body and not need to just like present it to everyone. But it's everything else too. It's the ability to have success in this world but not need to tell everyone about your success. It's the ability to have money in this world, but not need to tell everyone about how wealthy you are. It's the ability to have talent or friends or connection or experiences and not constantly need to tell everyone about it. See, modesty is this beautiful capacity to have a life where you don't need to constantly be proving yourself to others. That is so freeing. When you know who you are and how God has created you, where you know what your life is all about, where you know where God is using you, and you don't need to constantly brag to others about it. And here's a beautiful thing for you to remember, that modesty is the right road or the, the quickest road to Christ-likeness. Why do I say that? Because the scriptures say that Jesus, the Son of Heaven, the second member of the Trinity, stepped down into human flesh. And rather than walking around everywhere he went, just being like, I'm God, like Jesus lived in humility, he lived in obscurity, he didn't roll into Rome, which was the big city of the day. He lived in like this backwater place no one had ever heard of. Jesus lived in modesty. He had everything, and yet he didn't choose to present that. He chose to live in modesty. And I think this is a beautiful thing about our Lord. And if we want to become more like Jesus, modesty, not just in clothes, that's just like the simple stuff. Modesty about everything becomes something we value and we treasure. It says this in verse 4. It says, then, after you do this, right, when your left hand doesn't know what your right's doing, you're living in modesty, you're giving, it's just a normal part of your life, you're giving to your church, you're giving to others. It says then, your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And, and here's what I've learned over time. Um, my, my big fear, when I give a sermon like this, is that some of you will feel guilty and ashamed, and out of that guilt and shame, you will give to the church, or you'll give something. And I just want to free some of you tonight. If guilt and shame is the only thing motivating you to give money to this church, please keep your money. Don't give it to us. Don't give it to anyone. Guilt and shame are terrible motivators long-term. Like short-term, great motivators. Like you feel guilty about something, shamed about something, the next 48 hours you are on it. But it will never last. And here's what I know. The God of the Bible does not command you to give out of guilt and shame. He doesn't say, well, like, you're so wealthy. And, and you notice, I don't stand up here, I'm like, you are so wealthy, you're Americans, you live in Westlake Village, you better be giving. Like, I just don't do that. Because that's not what Jesus does. Like, look at the actual words Jesus says here. How does he motivate you to give? It is not out of guilt and shame. The motivation we have to give is reward. In other words, the God of the universe says give not out of guilt and shame, give. Because if you do, I will reward you in ways you can't even imagine. And so that's the motivation for you. Again, if it's guilt and shame, keep your money. 
But if you want the reward that God has for you, I want to encourage you to consider tonight what giving might look like in your life in this year, 2023. I want you to consider that. I want you to think about what it looks like. I want you to think about how to do it. Um, when I talk about ways to give, like you can give online at the Calvary website. There's a little box over there you can drop money in. There's a little QR code you can scan. We have started taking crypto, if that's your deal. Okay, listen, there's a, oh, so cool. <laughs> Chill. It's gone way down. All right. But listen, listen, um, I'm not really burdened tonight with like a fundraiser. I'm not really burdened tonight that you would know all the ways. Here's what I've learned in life. If you really want to do something, you'll, fig you you'll figure out how to do it, right? Like if you really want to figure it out, you'll, you'll get there. But I want to talk to you about how to receive the reward that God has for you tonight. And, and I just want to give these three steps. I've said these three before, but I just believe they're so important for you and your life. If you want to receive the reward that God has for those who give, here's three things you need to do. Number one, start now. Start now. The biggest lie some of you will believe is that I'll start giving once I make X. I'll start giving once I go full time. I'll start giving once I pay off my student loans. I'll start giving once I move out of my parents' house. I'll start giving once I get to that next level. Once I hit six figures, I'll start giving. Once I really make it, it's a lie. If you will not give when you have just a little, you will not give when you have a lot. I, I want us to know it's a lie. And so my encouragement is start now. Number two, I want to encourage you to start small. Uh, again, James Clear, we've talked about this quote, the Atomic Habits quote before. Uh, a habit must be established before it is improved. You have to start somewhere. And so some people like, have heard throughout their life a tithe is 10%. And listen, I think 10% is a great number to shoot for. But if you're given zero right now and you're like, 10%, I can never get there, and you throw in the towel, that's why I say start small. Just, just start with something. You know, some of you have heard me give this challenge a million times. I want to encourage you to give a dollar a week to your local church for the next year. If you do the math, that'll be $52. If you're like, I can't do $52, do a dollar a month for the next year, that'll be $12. If you're like, I can't do that, give a dollar every six months. Like, just start, like, make it as small as you can possibly manage and start there and start regularly. What are you trying to do? The point is not that you're trying to impress anyone. The point is that you are starting to build that habit and that rhythm into your life. You start now, you start small, and then the next thing is this, you start a new floor. You create a new floor. What do I mean by that? If you start giving a dollar a month to your local church, and it is $12 by the end of this year, next year, what if you made it $1.50 a month or two? But like, here's a goal my wife and I have said. I hope you will set this for your life too. I want to urge you to follow me as I follow Jesus on this. Be more generous every year until you die. Be the person who says, I will give away more money every single year until Jesus returns in glory or I go to be with him. I am going to do that for the rest of my life. And listen, if I fail in that because the bottom falls out and I have no money and I can't give away more dollars, okay, I think God gets it. But I just want to become a more generous person until the day I die, and that's what I want for you as well. So what do we do? We start now. Not someday, not when I make X, not when I get that job, not when I pay off debt. Start now, start small, and then set a new floor and commit to raising that floor every single year for the rest of your life. Why? Not out of guilt and shame. Not that you feel bad about this message. Why? Because Jesus offers reward. He says, lean into this and I'll reward you. Skip down if you're in your Bibles to verse 19. Jesus continues to talk about money after he talks about prayer. He says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. This is the classic, like, everything you own will someday be in a junkyard, in a trash can. It'll be rotting. It won't be worth anything. And even the most valuable things you own that you think will last forever, at some point, no one will care about. Don't store up for yourself treasures where thieves break in and steal and moths and vermin destroy. But store up for yourselves treasures on hev in heaven 
where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21, I think the most important verse in the scripture when it comes to your money, it says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This to me is the most significant verse in the Bible to me about money. Because here's what it tells me. It tells me where my heart goes. It tells me how I fall in love with God. Here's what I mean. Most people believe the wrong thing. Here's what I need you to know. Our treasure does not follow our heart. This is how most people think it goes. Most people think, I love this thing, and therefore, I will put my money into it. I love this church, therefore, I will invest my money into it. I love Jesus, therefore, I will invest my money into his kingdom. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. Our treasure does not follow our heart. Our heart follows our treasure. Our heart follows our treasure. When I put my money into something, my heart follows after it. So when I stand on this stage and say Bitcoin went up by $21 today, most of you do not care because you do not have money in Bitcoin. But for the handful of you in this room that still have money in Bitcoin, you care. Why? Because your treasure is there. So because your treasure is there, your heart starts to care about it. It's kind of like this. This is my wallet. None of you care about my wallet. But when I do this with my wallet... I am suddenly stressed out, <laughs> really stressed out. I don't know who you are over there. You could go take it. You could steal my, it's right there. But here's the deal. Do you notice you guys aren't stressed out like I'm stressed out right now? Maybe there's a little of you that's like, I'm a little stressed. But, right, but, 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 like, but like, you're going to forget about it and move on, and I'm going to finish the sermon, and my wallet's going to be over there, and I'm going to be stressed about it. Why aren't you going to be stressed about it 10 minutes from now? Because it's not your treasure, so your heart's not in it. But that's my treasure. There's not much treasure, but it's over there. And it's over there, and so my heart's over there right now. Why? Because my heart will always follow after my treasure. And why does this matter? Because here's a principle in life. If your heart is not in it, you will not grow. If your heart's not in something, you won't grow. It was like in 2019, it was my mom's birthday, and she said, for my birthday, all I want to do is be together with my family, and I want to ask you guys to do something crazy. We've never done this in our lives. She said, I want you to take a swing dancing lesson with me. I was like, really? Could we do literally anything else? And so my wife and I go, and we're like, it's my mom. Like, I'm going to honor her and do swing lesson dancing. And like, like we get in there, and we're doing this thing. And, and I didn't want to be there. I, I didn't do very well in it. And, and here's the deal. I took a class and got 0% better at swing dancing. I'm probably worse at swing dancing than I was before. Why? Because my heart wasn't in it. And because my heart wasn't in it, because my heart wasn't there, I didn't improve. And the same is true with your faith. If your heart's not in it, if you're not in for what God has for you, you won't improve. If you want to get to this place where we've been talking about throughout this series, where you do not worry, your heart has to be in it. And if your heart's not in it, it might be because your money's not in it. Because my heart's still right over there on the side of the room. Why? Because my treasure's over there. And for some of you, your heart is not in with the things of God because your treasure's not in with the things of God. But like, here's the question for you tonight. What if the one thing holding you back from spiritual breakthrough is your money? But what if it is actually your money that is keeping you from the breakthrough that God wants in your life? What if it is actually your money that God says, no, 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 I know you trust me with your future and with your spouse and with your family and with your career, but trust me with your money and see what happens. Like I dare you tonight to trust God with your money because wherever your money goes, your heart's gonna follow after. Verse 22 says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now here's a really interesting thing in the ancient world versus the modern world. In the modern world, we know that the light is actually out there, 
And our eyes are like the receptacles, like we receive light, and that allows us to interpret and understand. In the ancient world, they understood the, light to be, the eyes to be the light. It was almost like your eyes were like flashlights, and as you looked around in the world, you could see things. And when you didn't look around, it was darkness. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is actually trying to see how you see the world impacts how you experience the world. How you see the world impacts how you experience the world. And here's what I need you to know. The same is true with money. Your worldview about money is actually going to impact how you see the world and experience it. I'll say two things. When you see your money as yours, you think about your rights. When the money's yours, who are you to tell me what to do with it? It's my money. I'll do what I want to do with it. I'll spend it on what I want to spend it on. And who cares about my tax statement and my bank account? You call them theological documents. I call it mine. It's my rights. It's my money. But here's the other way around. When you see your money as God's, when you see your money as God's, you think about your responsibilities. You think about what I'm responsible for. Because here's the truth. The money's in your bank account, but the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. It's on loan to you. You are his manager. You are a money manager for God. All the money in my bank account, everything in my house, everything I own, my car, it all belongs to God. And the only question is, how will I steward that responsibility well? Because if I think about my responsibilities, man, I'm going to treat my money so differently than if I think it's all mine. And you know what the coolest thing about our God is? He goes, you get to have all your money. Give some of it away. Keep the rest. Enjoy the rest. Like, I just want you to know we're never going to stand up here and be like, you're supposed to be miserable. You're never supposed to enjoy a good meal. You're never supposed to go on a good trip. Like, that's just not what we preach. It's not what we teach. It's not in the Bible. But I do want you to know that the God of the universe says you are responsible for what you do with your money. And there will come a day where you are going to answer for every dollar that has flowed through your life. That is your responsibility. Final verse, verse 24, our band will make their way up. It says this. It says, no one, Jesus says, can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And, and to me, this has always been a remarkable verse that Jesus says. Be, because if you really were just to ask, like, who you can't serve, you think he would say you cannot serve both God and Satan. You cannot serve both God and the enemy, God and the devil. But he doesn't say God and the devil. He says you cannot serve both God and money. But because Jesus understands this really clearly, that the principal competitor to your heart is not the devil, it is the cash in your wallet or in your bank account. But like Jesus actually understands that the competitor to your heart isn't wickedness and evil, it is good things that you have turned into ultimate things. Thanks for your breath. <laughs> but here's what I want to say in closing. I want you to know that money is a resource to be used. It's a resource to pay your bills and to eat food and to enjoy life. It is a resource to be good to others. It is a resource to get clothes on your back and gasoline in your car. Money is a resource to be used. But listen to me on this. God is the source to be trusted. God is the source to be trusted. And you know what happens for so many of us? We get this exactly backwards. We think that money is the source we trust and God is the one we use to get more money. That's what we think. We think we can trust in our money, and if you have a solid paycheck or a big savings account, if you've got a lot of money, you feel good and you feel confidence in this world, and what you want is for God to just keep pouring more money into you, but you've got it exactly backwards. Listen, God is the one we trust. Money is a resource to be used, and if the money all goes away from you, you know it's brilliant? God's the source. He'll give you more. He'll take care of every one of your needs. He's going to do that. And so don't get this twisted. Don't get this backwards. Don't get to a place in life where you are trusting in money but wanting God to be your resource. Why? Because God's the one we want to trust. Because God's never failed you. He's never let you down. He's always faithful and you can trust him. 
Money is fickle. There will be times you have more. There will be times you have less. There will be times you get a great job and a big bonus and a great promotion and times you get laid off and you are living right on the edge and God will be faithful in all of it. Don't you dare trust in money. Don't you dare have your confidence in what's in your wallet or your bank account or your savings account or your 403B or your 401K or your investments or your Bitcoin. Don't put your confidence in that. It'll go away. Put your confidence in God. He is worthy of your trust. You know why we can give generously, freely, and give it away? Because money's not the source. We give away our money, and God is quite able, and I think quite willing, to give you far more than you could ever ask or imagine. I think God is willing to reward those who give. So tonight, you can wrestle with giving, you can ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? But in the end, the real thing I want for you is to do this. Stop trusting your paycheck. Stop trusting your money. Start trusting your God. He will never fail you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. Thanks even when your word challenges us. God, thanks for the sensitive parts where it's just hard to really figure out where our defensiveness is coming from. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is wrestling with the Holy Spirit over what to do with their money. God, I pray that they would not give out of compulsion, not give out of guilt and shame or condemnation, but rather that they would give out of the joyful expectation that you will reward us. So God, I don't know every story in this room. I just know you're moving and you're working and your ask is to trust us, or to trust you, us to trust you. So God, help us do that. Help me figure out how to trust you more than I trust my money, my wealth, my possessions. God, may I give it all to you because you own it all anyway. I pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen.